Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn. Continuing on with our six degrees of Robert Evans. Thank you for joining me today as we continue Robert Evans' story now running Paramount Studios through the rest of the decade of the 1960s with, in this episode, a whole array of stories from the delightful to the tragic. In this time period, Robert Evans will marry and divorce again, acquire a famous Hollywood home, get involved a bit with the FBI, Cary Grant also caused the divorce of Mia Farrow and Frank Sinatra, as well as narrowly escape the Manson family. Again, a caution for all this episode does contain strong language and adult themes. Before we begin today's ride through the 1960s of Bob Evans, I do want to thank our newest supporters over on Patreon. Holy cats! Enormous gratitude, huge thanks to Dion H., Morgan B., and Carrie A. Thank you for your support. Thanks to all of our Patreon folks getting ad-free early episodes, as well as weekly not-done-yet bonus episodes where we take the investigation a little bit further. Last week on Not Done Yet, we dropped our man Nick reporting in on the 90th anniversary of Paramount Studios back in 2002 and a few of those magical spiderwebs. Patreon.com slash done and done is the place to go to find out more information about all of that as now it is time to dip into Robert Evans and the wild and sticky decade of the 1960s. There is a whole lot of action connected into these years, both personally and professionally, for the kid. Let's investigate. All right, investigators, in this episode, we are going to go linear, as linear as we can. I want to get Robert Evans and this cast of characters through this decade because these stories are just incredible with so many spiderwebs. First up in our lineup today, Robert Evans is going to pick up his second wife as well as second divorce in this time frame. This marriage and breakup happened slightly before his Paramount promotion, but I would be remiss if I did not add in his second bride at this point in the story. Robert Evans' second wife was Swedish actress Camilla Sparve. The two married in 1964, and it sure starts in a promising way. Robert and Camilla spent their honeymoon with Robert's good friend, Porfirio Ruby Rosa, and his wife at the Marbella Beach Club in Spain. Robert Evans said in his memoir, The Fat Lady, saying that he couldn't help but notice Camilla noticing Ruby's famous endowment. But Evans also said he understood because everyone noticed it. The Ruby Rosas do take our newlyweds on a road trip during their honeymoon to a small Spanish town. It was Ruby Rosa's wedding gift to the couple. 
Ruby Rosa told Robert Evans. Roberto, I take you here to offer you my gift of marriage to Camilla. We are now entering Rhonda. It is the oldest bullring in the world. Robert Evans called it, quote-unquote, the most romantic gift of my life. Awaiting them were the two most legendary matadors in Spanish history in the quote-unquote suit of lights. They performed mano a mano, each fighting a bull in honor of the newlyweds. He said no money could have brought such a gift, but that Porfirio Ruby Rosa had arranged it for him and it was a beautiful gesture of their friendship. As we know, Robert Evans goes on to marry and divorce seven times. This love was not meant to last for marriage number two. Robert and Camilla will divorce three years later in 1967, just in time for Robert Evans to be transitioning out to a whole new lifestyle, home, and career in Hollywood. As for Camilla, Camilla Sparve will continue acting for a little while, she won a Golden Globe for the most promising newcomer in 1967 for her role in Dead Heat on a merry-go-round. She also had roles in Murderer's Row, The Trouble with Angels, Nobody Runs Forever, and Downhill Racer with Robert Redford. Camilla will stop acting in 1969, more than likely here because of her next marriage, in 1969, Camilla marries Herbert W. Hoover III. Herbert W. is also known as Bunker. That's his nickname. The two marry in 1969 in Miami Beach. Bunker Hoover is the heir to the Hoover Appliance Firm, which at the time probably made him the richest soldier currently serving in the U.S. Army. The marriage between Camilla and Bunker lasted about a decade on paper with two kids. Camilla goes back to acting, though, in 1975 and will continue to act pretty steadily with guest appearances in many popular television programs, as well as a few films, working consistently until the early 1990s, when Camilla's next marriage happens. Camilla married Fred Kobler, in 1994, Fred was a Wall Street banker, founded a successful hedge fund, and then a real estate company. The inside scoop gives a little bit of detail that Camilla and Fred perhaps got some of their money a little caught up with the Bernie Madoff business. Fred did pass away in 2016. As for Robert Evans, that is marriage number two of seven down, five to go, but no more marriages in this episode for him. Robert Evans is a single guy living his best life. Here in 1967, his dreams are coming true. He is going to be the guy who decides if the kid stays in the picture. He's making his own Hollywood dream happen, and every big dream picture needs a stage. Robert Evans is going to buy his own slice of Hollywood in 1967. This is a little home called Woodland. Robert Evans knows this home as well. He's had his eye on it for a very long time. Woodland was a French Regency home built in 1942. 
The house was originally built for art dealer and interior designer James Pendleton and his wife, Mary Frances. During the Pendletons' time at the home, one of their frequent visitors was Greta Garbo, who would always stay at Woodland whenever she came to Los Angeles. Woodland was designed by John Elgin Wolfe. Wolfe is not a name we hear very often today, but in the 1940s and 1950s, Wolfe was known as the architect to the stars. He was commissioned to design homes for Cary Grant, Errol Flynn, Vincent Minnelli, Barbara Stanwyck, Bob Hope, Agnes Moorhead, Lillian Gish, Ricardo Montalban, Loretta Young, Catherine Hepburn, George Cukor, John Wayne, David O. Selznick, Barbara Hutton, and many others. In Wolf's New York Times obituary in 1980, the paper credits him with establishing, quote, a new vocabulary for glamorous movie star living, unquote, by mixing elements of the 19th century French, Greek revival, and modernist styles, quote, into a heady mixture that has since been christened Hollywood Regency, unquote. Woodland Estate has the distinction of being Wolf's first in the Los Angeles area. This home played a key role in defining and promoting the Hollywood Regency style as both understated and glamorous. Compared to many Beverly Hills estates, Woodland is relatively modest in size and scale. It is 3,900 square feet with only three bedrooms. It is set on 1.4 acres of property with tennis courts and a pool. And investigators, Woodland is the home of a thousand stories within the arc of Robert Evans. Once Evans purchases this home, Charlie Bluedorn made some improvements and some changes, but it wasn't necessarily for the benefit of Robert Evans. See, Charlie Bluedorn, head of Gulf and Western, wanted to use Woodland, Evans's new home, for some secret and high-level meetings. Some legal, some not legal. Even with Bluedorn's additions to the home, Robert Evans is passionate about his Hollywood home and many of its features. Let's talk about a few good stories we can intersect here with Woodland Estate. Let's connect here Robert Evans's Woodland home purchase in 1967 into a Monet masterpiece. See, the thing you want to know is that Robert Evans has always wanted a great piece of art. Since he was a child, this is his dream to own a masterwork. So in 1967, Robert Evans buys Woodland. And in the time period of closing up his current New York City townhouse, Robert Evans will go to the Wildenstein Gallery to find, quote, the love of his life, a canvas he could spend nights alone looking at. Evans and one of the gallery's directors, wandered through room after room looking for just the right piece. Then the director unlocked another door and ushered Evans in. There before him was a six by 12 foot canvas of water lilies. It was an original Monet. 
Robert Evans writes, Was I in love? Very. Was it an expensive love? It was tagged at $580,000. Having learned from Blue Dorn, I was not timid to negotiate. After two hours, Robert Evans and Mr. Wildenstein settled on $436,000. And now, Robert Evans was the proud owner of Monet at his best. The next day, Robert Evans was ordered back to Los Angeles by Charlie Bluedorn to host a very important meeting at Woodland. Each of Bluedorn's eight guests had flown into Los Angeles in his own private jet. Even though Evans was the host, he was not introduced to any of the men, and he was not invited to eat lunch with them. In fact, every time he got close to the table, Bluedorn quickly ushered him away. When the clandestine meeting was finished, the last man to leave put his arm around Evans and said, You're a charming young man. Sorry you couldn't join us. Then he whispered, putting his finger to his lips, Don't tell Charlie. I'll fill you in. Put some bacon and eggs on for breakfast. I'll be here Monday at 8 a.m. At their secret breakfast meeting, Evans was told the purpose of the lunch. Y'all, you just can't make up the 1960s. Listen to this. The eight men were part of a new corporate America, and the purpose of their lunch meeting was to determine the purchasing and acquiring of United States industry. Each one assured the others that they would not infringe on each other's territory. At the end of the breakfast, the man whispered to Evans, Got any cash? Evans said, some, why? The response, it's private. Yes, sir, Evans responds. Promise? Promise. Then, this guy leans forward and says, I'm General Host. Name's Kleiner. Listen carefully. Our stock opened this morning at 43 and an eighth. Next week, I'm buying Kennecott Copper, then Pittsburgh Iron and Steel. In a month, I've got clear sailing to pick up dirt-cheap Pan Am Airlines. Even taking over something in your business, kid. Six months from now, my stock will still be selling at 43 and an eighth, only it will have been split four to one. Shh, don't say a word to Blue Dorn. Thanks for the breakfast, kid. So, Robert Evans did the only logical thing. He called and canceled the Monet. Then he purchased 11,500 shares of General Host. Three years later, General Host was no longer on the New York Stock Exchange, and Kleiner had moved to India. The stock certificates were worth nothing. The canceled Monet, however, the canvas was considered one of Monet's greats and has since been resold twice. Its last bidder paid $36 million for it. You can't win them all, I suppose. Robert Evans might not have won in the art game, but Woodland, his legendary home, will always be a background player in his story. You do not often hear about Robert Evans without mention of Woodland Estate, his beloved home. Robert Evans wrote in his memoir, 
More deals have been conceived and consummated in my projection room than in all of Paramount. Evans gave the go-ahead for both The Godfather and Chinatown at his home. Sir Lawrence Olivier actually lived there with him for six months during the filming of The Marathon Man. Richard Gere lived in Evans's guest house for five months while filming The Cotton Club. Orson Welles also loved to visit Woodland. In a Vanity Fair article from September 1994, Author Matt Turnauer writes, It would be hard to find a famous character from the 60s and 70s who has not in some way benefited from Evans's extravagance. When I ask him who has been a house guest here, he opens a three-ring binder and reads me a litany. Richard Gere has stayed here, he says, gesturing towards the guest quarters where McGraw now lives meant to be a very sexy room, in parentheses. Mia Farrow, Richard Burton, David Niven lived here for quite a while. Robert Altman, Salvador Dali, Teddy Kennedy, Olivier, Dustin, Cary Grant, Audrey Hepburn, Romy Schneider, Liv Ullman, Sumner Redstone, Bob Town, Dr. J, both Mariel and Margot Hemingway, and Roman Polanski. Robert Evans first saw the home and grounds back in the 1950s with Norma Shearer. Norma Shearer takes Robert Evans to Woodland one day when she was training him to be Irving Thalberg. Robert Evans sees this property and falls in love. When he became in charge of production at Paramount Studios, he decides to buy it. Robert Evans pays $290,000 at the time for Woodland. few other fun spiderwebs here. It was important to Robert Evans that he had the absolute best tennis court in Beverly Hills, and he made sure that happened. He was an avid tennis player himself, and Robert Evans also hosted a slew of celebrities and politicians who enjoyed his fabulous tennis courts? Who are some of his tennis friends? Barbara Streisand, Dustin Hoffman, Jack Nicholson, Ted Kennedy, Henry Kissinger, Charlton Heston, Richard Zanuck, among many others. Two very frequent guest players at Woodland were Johnny Carson and Merv Griffin. Robert Evans even beat O.J. Simpson on those tennis courts many moons ago when O.J. Simpson was just remembered as a famous football player. But it wasn't just the rich and famous and soon-to-be scandalous that played tennis with Robert Evans. Tennis champions such as Pancho Gonzalez, Jimmy Connors, John McEnroe, Bobby Riggs, and Serena Williams all played on Woodland's magnificent courts. Then there was that time when Johnny Carson threw a hissy fit. See, Johnny Carson takes his tennis game very, very seriously. Johnny Carson, at the time, married to his wife Joanna, one of Truman Capote's swans. And Johnny and Robert had planned a match for Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Robert Evans, unfortunately (laughs) for Johnny, had forgotten all about it, so when the doorbell rang at 9 a.m., Robert Evans was still very hungover from the night before, 
having just gotten home three hours earlier. Evans wrote that his head was throbbing so bad that his butler had to put his socks and shoes on for him. But after a Tylenol 3 and some orange juice, Robert Evans went out onto the court, quote-unquote, double-visioning it. There, he found Johnny Carson doing stretches and warm-up exercises with the, quote, focus of Boris Becker, unquote. (laughs) At the end of the match, Johnny Carson had lost to Robert Evans. His irritation and frustration impossible to hide. Carson said he should have never played that day because his back had been hurting so badly. On Monday morning, Carson's wife Joanna called Robert Evans and asked him what happened on Saturday. Evans replies, nothing. Why? Joanna replies, the strangest thing. Johnny came home. I asked him how the tennis match was. He slammed the door and hasn't spoken to me since. (laughs) In addition to the tennis courts, there was a legendary screening room, which plays a very vital role in the history of Woodland. After moving in, Robert Evans installs a wood-paneled screening room that was considered state-of-the-art at the time. Woodland's screening room played an integral role in his own life and career, and honestly becomes a Hollywood legend in its own right. In this screening room, Evans watches the studio dailies, as well as hosts many famous and powerful friends like Jack Nicholson, Dustin Hoffman, and Warren Beatty. It is not the last time we're going to see mention of that screening room in this story, but now is a terrific time to take a quick break. When we come back, we are going to talk about Robert Evans having a little run-in with the feds, as well as his first big success in Hollywood with a little film called The Odd Couple. Friends, we have fully moved our story into 1967, and in this year, Robert Evans was working on a project called The President's Analyst, the film starring James Coburn. The movie was a black comedy about a White House psychologist so troubled by state secrets that he needs to escape to a hippie commune. Two of the main bad guys in the film were the telephone company and the FBI. Robert Evans would end up paying a high price to make this film. What was that price? his privacy forever and ever. So one day, Robert Evans' secretary buzzes him to tell him he had two men here from the Hoover Agency to see him. Robert Evans says it must be a mistake because he wasn't looking for a butler. (laughs) And she said, no, Mr. Evans, not the Hoover Agency. It's Mr. Hoover's agency, the FBI. And then he wondered if it was something he had done in Havana. The two agents entered his office with no smiles and looking very serious. You're making a picture called the President's Analyst, correct? Correct, said Evans. We don't like the story, said one of the agents. Then don't see the picture. (laughs) Then don't make it. Robert Evans, irritated, said, Then give me a Paul Newman picture to take its place. 
the response. Mr. Hoover doesn't appreciate having the FBI being made fun of. Getting more irritated, Robert Evans said, Well, that's show business, fellas. To which the agents responded, Mr. Evans, I don't think you understand. Moving from irritated to downright angry, Robert Evans says, No, I don't think you understand. The picture goes as is. Got it? Soon after the agents left, Robert Evans got a phone call from Charlie Bludorn's right-hand man, Marty Davis. Are you crazy? You don't play games with Hoover. You don't play games with the FBI. In typical Evans fashion, Robert replied, Fuck him. It's a free country, isn't it? Marty Davis ordered him to change it. And so Evans did. <laughs> he changed the script to say FBE instead of FBI. He refused to budge any more than that, and he made sure the press had the story and knew why he had to change it. How did this work out for Robert Evans? This is what he wrote in his 1995 memoir, It's Been Over a Quarter Century Now. Still, my 32 phones at home and office share one thing, a silver anniversary of bugging. I hope what they've heard has made their faces as red as their necks. I am sure it probably did. <laughs> Goodness knows what you would have heard listening in on the phone lines at Woodland for all those decades. Okay, Robert Evans in his Hollywood dream home, Woodland. Let's give a moment here to talk about his First major success at Paramount, a little film called The Odd Couple. The Odd Couple had already been an enormous Broadway hit, and Charlie Bluedorn had seen it several times. With Bluedorn's love of the play, he feels that the stage actors should be cast in the movie version as well. Robert Evans felt that the film needed actual movie stars. Evans' philosophy was always that you should never make a deal unless you're prepared to blow it. And he was prepared. So Evans put his foot down and said that if he couldn't get Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon to star in it and Billy Wilder to direct it, he would quit. Spiderwebs here. Walter Matthau married to my very favorite swan made of moonbeams, Carol Marcus, and Billy Wilder, legendary filmmaker, we have talked about Billy Wilder and his legendary wife, Audrey Wilder, over on Patreon quite a few times. Dominic Dunn was a great friend of Audrey Wilder. Back to the odd couple. Charlie Bluedorn loves to negotiate, and Robert Evans said it was Bluedorn's biggest passion in life, and it was definitely going to come in handy for this deal. When Bluedorn read Robert Evans's memo outlying his plan for the odd couple, he turned white. He looked at Evans and said, $3 million and 50% of the profits? Evans, I'll go back to coffee futures before I accept this blackmail. But Evans knew just how to play Bluedorn, so he said, Charlie, you've negotiated the most complex deals in America. Are you telling me you can't sit down with a bunch of agents and make a deal for two actors and a director? Do it for me, Charlie, for Christmas, please. Make it happen, Charlie. I know you can. Bluedorn's buttons were pushed, and he could not shy away from the challenge. 
What ensued was a 72-hour negotiation war in Charlie Bluedorn's Beverly Hills Hotel Suite. Everyone was exhausted except Charlie, who was energized by it all and never accepted no. Still fairly new to show business, Bluedorn remarked after the first all-nighter, Hollywood, I thought it was glamorous. Everyone I meet is under five feet tall. Bluedorn keeps telling Robert Evans, I'm doing this for you, Evans. You know that, don't you? You sure you want it? Evans reassured Bluedorn that he wanted it badly and it would be a major hit. But Evans also knew that Bluedorn wasn't doing it just for him. He was actually loving every minute of it. Pacing around the suite at the Beverly Hills Hotel, trying to come up with a new strategy, Bluedorn lit up and said, There's one weak link, Billy Wilder. Evans told him that the actors wouldn't make it without Billy Wilder. Bluedorn got close enough to Evans that their noses were touching and said, Greed, Evans, greed. And guess what? Bluedorn was right. The actors would make the movie without Wilder. In the end, Jack Lemmon got his deal. $1 million against 10% of the gross. Walter Matthau got less because he was a far lesser star at the time, but he still walked away with $300,000. Billy Wilder? As Evans said, Wilder had to buy a ticket to see the movie. Paramount instead hired Gene Sachs to direct for a low salary. The odd couple cemented Robert Evans as the boy wonder of Paramount because the odd couple became the studio's biggest hit since the Ten Commandments. In 1968, The Odd Couple grossed $44.5 million, which today would be about $380 million. Not too shabby for your first success in Hollywood. Oh, these are heady times, and we are only just beginning with the Sticky Connections. Let's take a quick break here. When we come back, we're going to tell a few stories about Mr. Charm himself, Cary Grant. Back in a moment. Investigators in my heart of hearts. There's no one I find more charming, more fashionable, more dashing than Cary Grant. In this particular segment of our story today, I want to talk about that time where Cary Grant asks Robert Evans for some advice. It is on July 3rd, 1968, that Robert Evans's secretary runs into his office, blushing and stuttering, and said, Mr. Evans, I just got off the phone with Mr. Cary Grant. Mr. Grant would like to see you. Now, the thing you want to know is that Robert Evans and Cary Grant met years earlier when they had worked together at Universal. Evans described it as, quote, He, the most glamorous star in the world, me, a contract player at $175 a week. Most every day we'd pass each other on the lot. Though at the time we had never met, I couldn't help myself staring at him in awe. They had become friends because of a Yugoslavian basketball player named Luba Otasevic. Cary Grant had met Luba, this young Yugoslavian beauty, while filming The Pride and the Passion with Sophia Loren and Frank Sinatra. K. 
Cary Grant on set had fallen in love with Sophia Loren, but she had refused to divorce her husband, Carlo Ponti, to be with Cary Grant. Luba was the stand-in and double for Sophia. Cary Grant was fond of Luba because she reminded him of his romance with Loren, and he put her under contract with his company at Universal. You may have already guessed now that both men, Cary Grant and Robert Evans, ended up being involved with Luba. While Robert Evans worked at Universal, he had a love affair with the gorgeous Sophia Loren lookalike and had no idea of Cary Grant's relationship with her. Evans writes, To Cary, Luba was but a shadow, a remembrance of lost love. To me, she was what love could be all about. Luba introduced the two of them when she and Robert Evans started dating because it was important to her that her mentor, Cary Grant, approve of her Evans. Evans and Grant became quick friends and the three of them would often have dinner and go to a movie or another event several times a week. Evans writes, For two or three years, Luba played a very important part of my life. Her relationship with Carrie stayed the same, not platonic. All three knew what the action was. All three wanted one thing, to make one another's lives a bit more fun with no questions asked. Luba would end up marrying one of the wealthiest men in the world. Cary Grant and Robert Evans remain close friends, and Cary Grant now calls Robert Evans Evans, just like Luba did. That's a little bit of backstory, so back to July 1968. Robert Evans asks his secretary why she did not put Cary Grant's call through. She responds, he, he told me not to. He wanted to know what your weekend plans were. I hope I wasn't out of place. I, I told him you didn't have any. Could you spare a moment for him later this afternoon? Evans tells his secretary to call Cary Grant back and tell him he didn't have any plans until July 5th and Cary Grant could just come over whenever he wanted. A moment later, the secretary returns to Robert Evans's office, stuttering and obviously glowing from talking to Cary Grant. And here she says, he's, he's coming here, Mr. Evans, at six. Can I stay, please? Robert Evans says, I thought you were off to Catalina. Secretary responds, Catalina can wait for Cary Grant and... Robert Evans told her of course she could stay and meet him. A few hours later, Cary Grant was sitting in Robert Evans's office being served tea, quote-unquote, by the trembling hands of his flustered secretary. She leaned down and whispered in Robert Evans's ear, could I, could I ask Mr. Grant for his autograph? So Robert Evans says to Cary Grant, my secretary's blown her weekend to check out your smile. Write down the old CG for her, will ya? As soon as he said that, the secretary placed an 8x10 glossy photo of Cary Grant in front of him on the desk. The photo was from a movie he had made a decade earlier with Ingrid Bergman called Indiscreet. Dear, dear, 
Where did you find this one? Grant asked. From the film library, it's my favorite film. He looked closely at the picture and said, Ah, how young I looked. No wine has ever aged as well. It was such fun with Ingrid. I own the negative, you know. My dear, what is your name? Jennifer, she said. With that, Cary Grant stood up and said, It can't be. That's my favorite name. It's my daughter's name. Jennifer, Jennifer, isn't that something? Cary Grant signed the picture. Jennifer, my favorite name of all, Carrie. And, of course, the secretary was delighted and left on cloud nine. Now, Robert Evans had hoped that Cary Grant wanted to meet with him because he was ready to work again. Cary Grant coming out of retirement and working at Paramount would be a huge deal for Robert Evans. But work was not what Cary Grant came to discuss. One of the most admired actors and glamorous men in the world was sitting in front of Robert Evans asking for advice about marriage. In a very serious tone, Cary Grant said, Need some advice, dear Robert. Why doesn't Diane love me? The Diane in question is Diane Cannon. Perplexed, Robert Evans answered with, Would making a picture together help? (laughs) For the first time, Evans saw a small crack in Grant's sterling armor when he said, I'd be on my knees in broken glass if I thought it would help. After thinking for a moment, Robert Evans looked at his friend and asked, Does she like you, Carrie? Do you like her? Are you pals? Don't answer me, please. Just think about it. Answer it, but only to yourself. That's what it's all about. Carrie Grant swiftly and elegantly changed the subject smiled at Evans and said, Dinner tonight. When Robert Evans agreed, Carrie suggested that they go to Chasen's at 9 p.m. But Evans shook his head and said, Woodland, got a great duck in the oven. Give you a sneak peek of Rosemary's baby. It's the final print. Can I bring Dougie? He's in town. And so that night, July 3rd, 1968, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., Cary Grant and Robert Evans enjoyed two ducks, wild rice with plum sauce and a lemon souffle together. They discussed every subject you can imagine regarding relationships between men and women, except the one that Cary Grant had asked about privately in Evans' office earlier that day. A few months later, Diane Cannon filed for divorce from Cary Grant, claiming he beat her. Robert Evans writes, The most valuable jewel of Carrie's life, his daughter Jennifer, was now his only to visit, not to have. Of Carrie Grant, Robert Evans said, Fashion is temporary. Style lasts forever. Till this day, Carrie's the only man I've ever met who could walk into a room backward with more grace than anyone walking forward. Oh, there's something I love about that story, Jennifer, Jennifer. 
We have fully moved into 1968 now. That story took place in July, and you heard me drop a name in there of a pretty famous film, Rosemary's Baby. We're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, we're going to conclude our story today talking about that film, Rosemary's Baby, how Robert Evans discovered Roman Polanski, how because of Rosemary's Baby, Robert Evans caused the divorce of Frank Sinatra and Mia Farrow, as well as his narrow escape from the Manson family. See you back on the flip to close this one out. The 1960s for Robert Evans, big, big time. It is in this time frame that Robert Evans acquires the rights to Ira Levin's new novel, Rosemary's Baby. William Castle wanted to direct and produce it. And Robert Evans told William Castle he could produce it, but he was not the right director for the film. Robert Evans had a different director in mind, a Polish guy named Roman Polanski. At the time, Roman Polanski was still a Hollywood unknown, but had made some offbeat thrillers in Europe, and Evans appreciated his creative direction and style. Evans had heard that Polanski was an avid skier, so he lured him to his office under the guise of directing the Robert Redford film Downhill Racer, which had already been assigned a different director. Within minutes of Polanski being in Evans' office, he knew he liked him. Evans wrote, We clicked immediately because we both came from the same school of drama, the drama of life. Evans said to Polanski, Downhill Racer was just a pretext to get you here. Would you read this? And he gave him a copy of Rosemary's Baby. Roman Polanski was skeptical, but Robert Evans told him that if he read it and he didn't like it, his next ski trip would be on him. It's not a surprise that Roman Polanski loved it and agreed to direct the movie. As soon as pre-production began, so did the fights. Of those fights, Evans writes, Fighting is healthy. If everyone has too much reverence for each other, or for the material, results are invariably underwhelming. It's a reverence that makes things sizzle. It's a reverence that gives you that shot at touching magic. One of the points of contention was casting the lead female role. Polanski wanted Tuesday Weld. Robert Evans wanted Mia Farrow. Roman didn't think that Mia's ethereal quote-unquote, quality would transfer well to film. As we all know now, Mia Farrow got the part. For the lead male character, Polanski wanted Robert Redford, but he was already doing Downhill Racer. Co-starring Camilla Sparve, Robert Evans's second wife. So Warren Beatty heard about Robert Redford being offered the part before him in Rosemary's Baby and got upset and I knew Warren only wanted to be asked if he could say he turned it down. He's still that way, <laughs> Evans said. So he goes to Warren Beatty and says, It's yours, Warren, but you're not right for it unless you play it in drag. The film started shooting and the dailies were brilliant, but Polanski was moving slow and he had fallen very behind schedule. Of course, the studio was unhappy about this. Eventually, they told Evans to fire Roman Polanski. 
Instituting his old theory about not making a deal unless you're willing to blow it, Evans told Bluedorn that if Polanski goes, he'll quit too. But Evans did have a serious talk after this with Polanski about the schedule. Pick up the pace, will ya? Or we'll both end up in Warsaw. Rosemary's baby falling behind in schedule would end up causing more trouble than just that. Oh, the spider webs, it all comes together. Soon, Robert Evans gets a phone call from Frank Sinatra. And Frank Sinatra says, I'm pulling Mia off the fucking film, Evans, if it ain't finished by November 14th. She's starting my picture on the 17th. The picture Sinatra is referring to was The Detective, the very same movie that Robert Evans had bought the rights to in order to get his foot in the door at 20th Century Fox. When he ended up breaking the contract with 20th Century Fox to go to Paramount, Evans felt bad and told them they could keep the detective. And now it was coming back to bite him. Robert Evans says, sorry, Frank, she won't be finished with Rosemary's baby until mid-January. Sinatra says, then she's quitting and hung up the phone. Let's set this in the time frame. This is not terribly long within the marriage of Frank Sinatra and Mia Farrow. These two got together, Frank and Mia, just in time to attend Truman Capote's Black and White Ball in November 1966. Remember, Frank Sinatra has kind of made a jerk out of himself a few times at the Daisy in our arc, not only with Dominic Dunn, but with his wife, Lenny. The time period of this story is the end of 1967, early 1968. By August of 1968, Frank Sinatra and Mia Farrow are divorced, paperwork completed. How do we get from one point to the other, and what does Robert Evans have to do with it? So, Frank Sinatra wastes no time in telling Mia Farrow that if she did not quit Rosemary's Baby and start on The Detective, he would divorce her. A hysterical Mia Farrow was quickly in Robert Evans's office telling him she had to quit the film, saying, I love him, Bob. I love him. I'm going to quit. And Robert Evans said, Mia... If you walk off in the middle of my film, you'll never work again. The Screen Actors Guild will enjoin you from doing his picture too, Mia. A sobbing Mia Farrow replied, I don't care, I don't care. I just want to be with Frank. Evans had learned a few things about actors in his time, and he decided to use this to his advantage. Mia, come with me. Robert Evans then takes Mia Farrow into his screening room and shows her an hour cut of Rosemary's Baby. They watched it in complete silence. When it was over, Robert Evans told her, I never thought you had it in you. It's as good, no, even better than Audrey Hepburn's performance in Wait Until Dark. You're a shoo-in for an Academy Award. All of a sudden... Her tears were gone, and Mia's face lit up. Do you really think so? Evans replies, The one thing I'm not is prone to exaggerate. You're a shoo-in, Mia, a shoo-in. Mia Farrow decided to stay and finish Rosemary's baby. 
Frank Sinatra served her with divorce papers right there on the set, delivered in person by his own attorney, Mickey Rudin. Robert Evans did say it was awfully funny how quickly women recover, because within a week, Mia Farrow's only concern was making sure Rosemary's baby outgrossed the detective. Ironically, both movies opened on the same day. The detective opened to respectable box office sales, but Rosemary's Baby was the hit of the entire summer and made Mia Farrow a full-fledged movie star. Her response? Mia Farrow asked Paramount Pictures to take out a double-page ad in both Variety and The Hollywood Reporter. On one side, she wanted in bold numbers the theater gross of Rosemary's Baby and, on the other, the theater gross of The Detective. Robert Evans declined her request. Polanski and Robert Evans remained close friends until Robert Evans' death. Evans writes, Roman stands in my book of life as being one of the most extraordinary people I've ever had the good fortune to meet, know, befriend, and love. Rosemary's Baby, that was some pretty heady stuff, 1968. Pretty incredible time for Robert Evans and Mia Farrow and Roman Polanski and the like. There is a strong friendship that develops between Robert Evans and Roman Polanski, which leads us to our last story in today's episode with Robert Evans narrowly escaping the Manson family and his support to Roman Polanski after those terrible events of August 1969. See, Robert Evans had described Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski as the happiest married couple in Hollywood. He was very close friends with the both of them, and they spent a great deal of time together. In the spring of 1969, Paramount had invested some money into a low-budget film that a friend of Polanski's was making in London. In July, Robert Evans flew to London to look at the rough cut and said it was not ready to be released. Roman Polanski stayed in London to re-edit it. During the week that Robert Evans was in London with Roman Polanski, the two went shopping for a vintage Rolls-Royce Silver Dawn to give to Sharon as a present for their first baby. When Robert Evans left to return to Los Angeles, Polanski said, Look after Sharon for me, will you, Bob? Tell her I love her. I'll be home in a few days. One night, soon after he returned, Robert Evans was invited to go to dinner at El Coyote with Sharon and some of her friends, and then back to Saleo Drive to hang out. Sharon told him it would just be her house guests, Gibby Folger, and her boyfriend, Wojtek Frakowski, who was a great Polish friend of Roman's. When Sharon phoned to invite him, Robert Evans said, Sounds great, baby. I'm working in the editing room. I might be a little late. But when it was after 9 p.m. and he was still sitting in the editing room, he realized he needed to call Sharon to cancel. I'm stuck, baby. Count me out. Sorry. Sharon replied, don't be silly, Bob. I can always get Jay. She was, of course, referring to Jay Sebring. Robert Evans signed off with sweet dreams 
and Sharon Tate replied, you too. The next morning, Evans got up and drove to the Beverly Hills Hotel, where Charlie Bluedorn was staying while in town from New York. When they returned to Woodland, his butler told Evans that Joyce Haber, the L.A. Times columnist, was on the phone. Evans reminded his butler he didn't want any calls, but he was told that it was urgent and that Joyce Haber sounded terrible. Evans took the call in his bedroom. When Haber heard his voice, she started crying. You aren't dead. You aren't dead. Joyce, what are you talking about? Of course I'm not dead. You didn't hear. Hear what? It's on the radio last night at Sharon and Roman's house on Saleo. They're all dead. What are you talking about? Evans asked. Haber said they're all dead. Sharon, J.C. bring Gibby Folger, that Polish Wojtek, what's his name? I know I was supposed to be there. They've all been killed. A landslide? Evans asks. No, they were murdered, some kind of massacre. When Robert Evans asked about the baby, Joyce Haber was not able to go on. Robert Evans returned to his living room where Charlie Bluedorn was waiting impatiently for him. Evans started to cry. Bluedorn put his arm around him and Robert Evans told him what had happened. Now it was time to prepare for Roman Polanski's return from London. Evans knew he couldn't go back home to Saleo Drive. Evans first set Polanski up in the Paramount lot and arranged for him to be heavily sedated by the Paramount doctor for a few days. Then Roman Polanski moved into Evans's guest house at Woodland. It required 24-hour security because everyone wanted to have access to Roman Polanski. The Los Angeles Police Department put a tap on the phones as part of their investigation. Robert Evans wrote, How I remember cradling Roman as if he were a child. I loved him. I felt his pain. Even though criticized, I went the extra nine yards, doing whatever I could, whatever to ease his suffering. Though I could do little, at least I was there. Warren Beatty, Robert Evans, and Richard Silbert, and a few other friends took turns staying with Roman in the weeks following the murders. Most of Hollywood turned out for Sharon's funeral. Later, Roman Polanski would write that the funeral was like some ghastly movie premiere. As they left Holy Cross Cemetery, Polanski said to Evans, The only one of Sharon's good friends who didn't come, Bob, is Steve McQueen. Sharon loved that cold son of a bitch. Steve McQueen would end up playing a big role in Robert Evans's future, too, when Steve McQueen had an affair with Allie McGraw, Robert Evans's third wife, causing the end of that marriage. That story and more are coming in our next episode of Done and Done as we move Robert Evans and a whole cast of characters into the 1970s. Thank you, friends, for joining me today. I really do appreciate you spending your time with me and all the other ways you support Done and Done, telling your friends, your 
very kind reviews and emails too. Huge thanks to all of our supporters over at patreon.com slash done and done. Stay tuned this week on Not Done Yet. Folks, we are going to take a side trip into August of 1969 with Dominic Dunn and his coverage of the Manson murders and mostly him talking about his friends, Jay Sebring and Sharon Tate. Dominic Dunn writes on what that time period was like then and what does come after. Again, that is coming for you this week on Not Done Yet on Patreon. On our next Dunday, we will be taking Robert Evans into a few more marriages and divorces, a few famous films, including Love Story and The Great Gatsby 2. Until we meet again then, friends, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends. 